0: Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Towne. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we talk about Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, value investing, buying $10 bills for $5, what are the most critical things you have to know as an investor, and thank goodness there's only a few of them, (laughs) and why a little investor, contrary to all of everything the entire financial advisory services and the whole financial services system is telling you, why we think the little investor can actually have very high returns with very low risk, less risk than you're taking right now, particularly today, in your 401k and your IRA. So wow. if you just got a little nervous there, I would say it's time to get very afraid. Yes. Because <laughs> we're not on TV. Um, we don't have to deal with the lawyers who are saying, oh, you're starting to stampede. We're not starting to stampede. No, you? no. Out of, of the market? Not.
1: We would never stampede anywhere because we are. Thoughtful, methodical, long term. Unemotional. No, we're emotional.
0: Yeah, we.
1: Well, speak for myself. I'm emotional. Very,
0: very deeply unemotional, logical, <laughs> rational. Charlie Munger. Yes. Investors I
1: think even Charlie has emotions can't find them (laughs) So podcast listeners we are live on Facebook today And we're going to be taking some questions from people on Facebook as well And we have the wonderful and amazing and the beautiful and I'm only sorry that you can't see her Amelia Wood here uh, who's our wonderful publicist here at HarperCollins and she's going to be reading out some questions
0: Okay, you want to hear a voice from way out in the dark? Yeah. Say hi, Amelia.
1: Hello,
2: everyone. There she is. <laughs> everyone who's watching live on Facebook, type in your questions, and Danielle and Phil will answer them live. So, but let's kick off yeah. by starting to talk about the
1: market.
0: Yeah, I it's said been be afraid, right? All
1: bloody, all over the place.
0: Yep, it's been all over the place.
1: Why are you saying be afraid?
0: Well, because there's a, a few handful of things that have been consistently accurate over many, many years. At sending me out of the market or back oh. into the market.
1: What is that?
0: So the number one thing is to get a sense of the value of the market, the price that the market has, uh-huh. against uh, the gross domestic product. In other words, the the revenue that's created by all of the stuff we do all day in business across the entire United States. That, that revenue is called GDP, or gross domestic product. Mm-hmm. And there's a relationship, as you would naturally expect, between the stock market value and gross domestic product, right? Because this is the revenue of all these businesses. And the biggest and best ones are typically public companies in the stock market. So if your GDP is going up, you know, your stock market's likely to go up. So there's a relationship between the two of them that has been established for a long, long time. Warren Buffett. Points to it as, you know, if you're going to take the extraordinary measure of trying to figure out the value of the stock market, which is really hard to do, um, whether it's overpriced or underpriced, then that GDP ratio to the value of the market is probably the single best thing you can look at.
1: It makes sense.
0: It does make sense. It Uh, makes very good sense. So I
1: didn't know that's what you were going towards. But that is the Buffett indicator, a lot of people call it. And we call it that in our new book, Dad, which came out yesterday, our new book, Invested. Invested. And I just thought, like, (laughs) for so many months, I've been saying on the podcast, oh, when the book comes out, we're going to talk about stuff that's in the book. Right. And this is like, it's happening right now. Are, and I thought right I could now, actually say the page. So the Buffett Indicator, you guys, for all of you who got the book yesterday when it came out, is on page 95. There which, you tells, go. which tells
0: you right there. It takes us 95 pages to even get to where we're looking at <laughs> That's exactly something right. like the Buffett Indicator. That's so there's exactly a lot of things right. you might want to do first Yes. before you start looking at this part of the market. But I think that today is a really good day to be talking to you guys about the overall value of the market relative to or the overall price of the market relative to what it typically sells for, mm-hmm. which is what that indicator says. So let me run some numbers by you.
1: Okay, tell me. All right. Because I know it's been way we've talked about it before on the podcast. It's been way overpriced.
0: the The relationship has been way skewed recently. Yeah. So let me give you a little history. All the way through the nineteen seventies, the nineteen sixties, the nineteen seventies, um, the nineteen eighties, all that whole period of time. The market price, which, which by the way, you can look it up, it's it's a market index called the Wilshire 5000 index.
1: Yeah, so that's like, like a stand-in for the whole market. It's a stand-in it's, because it's because a lot you can of look stocks. It up, so it's something like, I think it's not actually 5,000 like because I looked it up, but it's like yeah. 4,000 something. Right. And it's just an easy number you can grab to make this ratio.
0: Right, and so that number has typically been a smaller, it's been a smaller number than GDP for years and years and years and years. So let's say back, at, way back um, after, when, during the Vietnam War and so on, the market was priced at about 20% of GDP. Hmm. 20%. 20% of GDP. So one okay, yeah. the market was a dollar and GDP was five dollars.
1: So the market was a dollar and Everything the U.S. was making in the borders of the U.S. was $5.
0: Yep, so total revenue okay. was $5. Okay, and that was really super cheap um, at the at the bottom there. And that's when Warren Buffett, of course, was buying a lot of stocks. That's when he made billions of dollars and, and so on. So then as time went along, we got into the 80s. And then the market rose and it rose and rose relative to GDP. And it got up to where it was ultimately in the 1990s, early 1990s, mm-hmm. it got to right at about 100% of GDP. So if GDP was at that point $10, the market was $10 also. So it had come all the way up, all this way, all right? So by mid-1990s. And then it went over that. And wow. in 2001, Warren Buffett went into, a, or was was interviewed, I think for Fortune or Forbes magazine, and he said, you know, you could see it in 1999 that this relationship between the Wilshire GDP and GDP had gotten skewed so far that it became dangerous. Warren said that when that relationship is like, Wilshire is 70% of GDP, that's a pretty good time to buy stocks. But when it gets up into that higher range, 100, like 120, over 100%. yeah, then it's a scare. it starts to get scary because the market becomes overpriced, it got overheated and overpriced. Hmm. Okay, So he made that call, and the market, sure enough, crashed 50%. Then the Wilshire went back up to that ratio again in in 2007, and the market crashed 50%. And then the Wilshire went back up to that level again in 2015.
1: Wait, the Wilshire or the Buffett indicator?
0: The, the, the Wilshire GDP is what's called yeah. the Buffett indicator. Yeah. So the ratio between the Wilshire and GDP went back up after okay. 2009. Yeah. All the way back up to 100%, and then 110, and then 120, 30, 40, yeah. 50, and now it's at 155%.
1: my gosh. I think when we talked about it last, it was at somewhere around 40. Yeah. 42, 42,
0: 43, 140,
1: something like that. and
0: now it's up to 155. Wow. So it's. Really, really up there. Historically, I don't know of any time where I can see those ratios that it's been that high. Yeah. So that's the first big red flag so that I've got.
2: Phil and Danielle, we've got some comments coming in here. Um, we've got Carleen from Calgary, Canada. She says that she um, did a course with you in January, and she's looking forward to the next one. Thanks, Carleen. We've got Phil from Oahu saying hi. And as what like what you're talking about right now, we've got Josh with a question saying... Based on the market volatil- volatility picking up right now, are you ready to call a top? What do you think? Oh, tuned here. he's getting, he getting to know. that. Yeah. Stay
0: tuned, Josh. Um, we're, we're getting to that, but I want to provide the groundwork here. Okay. Are you with me so far? I'm
1: with um, you on the, the Buffett Indicator. OK,
0: on the Buffett Indicator. So that one's big red flag. And that is an indicator we call a fundamental indicator. That means it's dealing with real numbers, real earnings, real sales in the GDP uh, real relationships between price and, and, and sell and sales. So that's that, that, that kind of a number is called a fundamental. So that's the first thing. This, I mean, wait,
1: can I just say one thing on that sure, though? Sure. I mean, how, what do I say about this? Like it's so high that you, I would have said, oh, I mean, I think we did say months ago, it's insanely high. Right.
0: Watch and out And now below. it's
1: higher. Now it's higher. So like. Maybe it could just keep going higher.
0: No, maybe about it. It certainly could keep going higher. Okay. All right,
1: let's just hold it there. Then. So, All right, and, go
0: and, ahead. And you taught me this word. I will stipulate that it can.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course it could. Of course
0: it could. And so this goes back to the understanding of markets and why it's so difficult uh, for somebody like me or somebody who's way smarter than me like Warren Buffett to say, oh, we're at a market top, yeah. right? Because Keynes is famous economist back in the 30s said that markets can be irrational longer than you have money if you're betting <laughs> against them. <laughs> so you have to keep That's that funny. in mind, that <laughs> that these markets, contrary to modern portfolio theory, which is what's taught in all the, all the schools, markets are extremely emotional. Mm. Markets, are, as, as Richard Thaler put it for the 2017 Nobel Prize in economics, markets are made of humans. Humans are emotional, therefore markets are emotional. It's really straightforward and it's amazing that other academics didn't see this for the last 40 years. But they're seeing it now. And so the emotions of the market can make it operate with irrational pricing. And we are seeing that now with the, with the share at 155% of GDP. Okay. makes no sense. So
1: that's data point number one. Data point number one. Which we're not going to rely on
0: just that. Not going to rely on that. What else? But it's an indicator. Okay. Then the second thing is called the Shiller PE. And you can Google Shiller, S-H-I-L-L-E-R, PE. And it is a ratio, PE ratio, between the S&P 500 uh, price and the earnings of the S&P 500 total, all those 500 stocks, mm. take their earnings, divide it into their price, and you get a number. And then what, where this ratio becomes really valuable is that uh, the guy that developed it is Robert Schiller at Yale, who got the Nobel Prize in 2013. So I'm, I'm dropping names here. Because I don't want you guys thinking about this like, I made this stuff up and it's real important you listen to me. I'm I'm going to lean on some big heavyweights here on some giants. So Schiller got the Nobel Prize in 2013 for doing the work on the Schiller PE and proving as part of that that the markets can be irrational and and improperly priced. And so what the Schiller PE says is that if you average off the PE ratios on the S&P for 10 years smooth them off.
1: So the S&P 500 is an index of stocks. There's mm-hmm. 500 companies right. in that index.
0: Compared to Wilshire 5000, yeah. this is the 500 biggest and best.
1: Okay. Okay. So, so it's not very just a random specific number. It's list of companies stocks. that have been chosen. It's this it's yep. this index of 500 companies called the Standard & Poor 500. Right. And people often take it as a very good indicator They'll of the market it, as this a This is the market.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. So there, there's two actual big uh, market indexes that are considered to be the market. If you're listening to people on TV, oh, the market's going up or the market's going down. They're talking about the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is only 30 stocks, but 30 big ones, and the S&P 500, which is 500 big ones. So, well, they're they're not interchangeable, but they're close. And and so, what Schiller did is adjust that P/E ratio for inflation. Over time. And mm-hmm. so it's called the cyclically adjusted P.E. ratio. Mm-hmm. You got the, pri- the prize for this. And it's amazing. It goes back 140 years. And what it shows is the average of this indicator is 16, a P.E. ratio of 16. Okay. All right. And whenever we get above the mid-20s, 23, 24, we're running into the edge of what the market will do.
1: So why does that matter? Like, why does the price to the earnings, what, what does that tell us?
0: It's a really strong fundamental that says that, there is a, that that buying stocks or parts of companies is not like buying Picassos, where it's just whatever price people will pay. There's an actual relationship between the earnings that you're going to get in the future and the price you're willing to pay today.
1: Because the earnings are what is coming is being created by these companies, right? So when you buy them, that's what you're buying. That's really, what you're buying is the earnings. That is you're those earnings get from them. the cash flow? And so the question is like, what price do you pay for these right future earnings? For
0: these future earnings in these big companies that don't grow, they're not like superstar growers, right? They're just going to grow steadily. Great companies, very diversified. How much would you reasonably pay? Okay. And the answer is you'd reasonably pay about sixteen, so 16 times those earnings. So sixteen is very standard. Right, yeah, very it. standard but it moves around through there because of emotion, right? So well, fear will just drive emotion, it down.
1: Like reality, facts, events sure. oh, that oh, happen oh, in the world, wars, oh sure. oh sure. depressions. And
0: the thing is it's just not and again, remembering that fund managers have a very short-term view of the world because of their job, yeah. they have to. They're going to get fired if they go too long-term. Then you're going to have the market movement as a result of short-term issues.
1: Okay, so where are we now on the Schiller P-E okay, cape. So some people call it the cape. The cape. I found out. So
0: if, if you first that, saw and I was like, "What the
1: heck is uh, that?" Cape. I had to figure it out.
0: So the, if you're thinking that's 16, okay, that's reasonable. 16, and then when it gets up into the mid 20s, it starts to get a little edgy, unreasonable. Okay. And the market tends to go sideways or down. Okay. When you get to 30, you're in uncharted territory, except for two other times in history, three times in history now. The first was 1929 and right after that it crashed, huge. The second time was in 2000, and -hmm. right after that it crashed huge. Mm -hmm. And the third time is now. It's above 30, it's right now running I think 32. Um, And again, to your point, it could go as high as 40, which it did in 2000,
1: it It went went to 40. 40
0: before it crashed.
1: Wait, if only I had a handy chart. Oh, my God, on page 95. <laughs> let me look at it. I totally, literally, I put this in the book and I forgot that it went to 40. So let me look it at it. It went to 40. Wait, it went above 40 according to my handy chart.
0: Well, we discussed that when we were putting that chart into the book. <laughs> Is that, you did? Yeah, because if you go and look at it online, you'll see that it kind of goes to 40. But if you go and look at it in a place that's very hard to find online, you'll see it goes to 44. Point B. That made no
1: sense to me. So the answer is it goes to 44. Okay.
0: It goes to 44 okay. under one person. chart. So my chart.
1: chart is super accurate. It
0: might be super accurate.
1: Because I got this might, data from Mr. Schiller's website. No, so then, then, I know that it's accurate. I'm going to
0: go with that data yeah. then. So um, 44. In other yeah. words, again, to the Keynes point, it can get crazy irrational longer than you have money if you're betting against the market. But right now at 32, it's in territory we've only been in twice before in history. It's really, history being 140 years.
1: Yeah, that's wild. But I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting to know how high it went before. Yeah,
0: yeah, before it, it, can, it can keep on rocking. Yeah. And of course, there are things going on in the economy right now where a lot of people think it's going to keep on rocking, yeah, right? Of we have this do. big tax cut. We have uh, the most optimism from consumers we've seen in a decade. Yeah, totally. um, and we have a lot of things that are scaring people.
1: OK, so those are two things. Okay. Is there anything
0: else? Oh, there are other things. <laughs> yes, indeed. There's something I don't talk about very often, but I think um, it's really important, is that to understand there's a relationship between the prices people will pay for stuff in the market and interest rates. Oh. And the reason for that is because interest rates represent a, a, a risk-free rate of return, mm. one in particular.
1: Like- like almost risk-free, right? They call it, They literally call it get. risk-free. Yeah, you're right. They do call it
0: the risk-free rate. Risk-free rate, rate which is the, the and we're going to use the 10-year T-bill, okay. 10-year treasury note, meaning you lend your money to the federal government for 10 years, and at the end of it, you're very likely to get your money back. And the reason is, is because they have a what? A
1: printing press. Exactly. <laughs> I've learned a thing or two. So yeah. they have a
0: printing press. So unlike Greek... Bonds where they didn't have a printing press they couldn't print euros to pay off their bonds America has a printing press therefore you will almost certainly get your money back might not worth a lot But so, it's still gonna come back so
1: the deal is with that that you've got to make more than that rate because you can go Get that rate on a ten-year make more than that 10-year treasury bond, right? So there's no point in risking anything right anywhere else unless you're gonna make more money That's kind of the point.
0: Right? That's exactly the point now here to that Point is what do you get when you put your money in a ten-year T-bill, and the answer is typically you're going to get four to six percent per year. That would be historically a reasonable number. Let's call it four to six
1: percent on a T-bill. Yeah,
0: on a ten-year T-bill. Oh yeah, not now. Yeah, not. But historically.
1: Oh, I see. Right.
0: What is going on now is that the Federal Reserve, to keep us from going into depression in two thousand nine artificially lowered interest rates aggressively down to zero. And as a result, the 10-year T-bill was at 1.6% and hovering between 1.6 and 2.2 or 2.3. Yeah. All right. That's an extremely artificially low rate of return, risk-free, but what it did is it propped up super high prices in the market because you can pay more. If all you have to do is beat a 2% return, you could pay twice as much for a business than you would if the return was 4%.
1: And you'd still make money.
0: And at, you'd still look and good. And so they're using that out there in Wall Street to justify the higher prices that they're paying. Hmm. Genius, right?
2: So Danielle so, and Phil, we've got mm. some questions coming in here. Um, All right. To what you um, to your point about the 10-year T-bills, um, so Alex asks, as someone who shies away from the stock market altogether, can you suggest, A, a fresh way to get involved for a newcomer, possibly a 10-year T-bill, I don't know, and B, a better way to keep track of your 401k, which many people don't really watch very closely. Ooh. Two-part question. So
0: the bond question is, oh, dear Lord, no, you do not want to go into a 10-year T-bill right now. But keep in mind, I'm not (laughs) your advisor. This is not recommendations. This is not advice. This is just just me with my opinion. Pure
1: opinions. And you're
0: going to have to go seek professional counsel. But in my humble opinion, interest rates are headed that way. So when you put in... I mean, they
1: could go flat, right? It like,
0: could very well. Yeah. go goes nowhere. But the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates two or three times this year, maybe three, and intending to continue doing so. As a result, the 10-year T-bill will rise. So if you put $100,000 into a 10-year T-bill right now at the current 2.8% roughly, then they raise interest rates up a full percentage point. Your T-bill now is at 3.8%. Mm-hmm. Well, excuse me, the T-bill is at 3.8.
1: Oh, your Yours T-bill is at 2. still at, 8. yeah, 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 that's so true. So if you wanted to sell that the whole that point T-bill, is that you get locked in for 10 years, You're right? locked in. So how does that relate to the market? Because you were just saying that, so interest rates, uh, and the ensuing risk-free rate on T-bills actually let people spend more money right. on stocks in the market. Interest
0: rates go down. Stocks go up. Interest rates go up.
1: Stocks go down. Stocks go down. <laughs> okay.
0: Interest rates go up. Stocks go down. That's just the historical relationship between the, the, the risk-free rate and what you've got to get to get risk, uh-huh. to, to justify risk. So if interest rates are at 6%, percent you got to get a lot more. Out of your risk investments than you do if interest rates are at two. I see. That's okay. the relationship. Okay. Now, to her point, um, if you have a two point eight percent T bill and a hundred thousand dollars in it, and then interest rates go a year later to three point eight, and you need to get your money back, you will be selling your one hundred thousand dollar T bill for about sixty five thousand dollars you have lost a third of your money. And that's the fear people have now as interest rates are starting to rise, is that their money goes into a bond fund and every year the bond fund is struggling against higher rates and getting less and less money for the existing old bonds. So be very, very careful. We've had 25, 30 years of a bull market in bonds as the interest rates came down. And now we're starting off the bottom to rotate the other direction. So this is really challenging time to be in bonds.
1: So would you, would it be fair to say that you see the recent interest rate, interest rate hike, interest rate hike, to mean that that's another indicator that the market might be heading downward?
0: Yes and no. Okay. It's. It is headed toward another indicator that the market could be heading down. It's but headed at,
1: toward another
0: indicator <laughs> that
1: the market could be heading but because down. Because
0: it's- Excellent hedge. Thank you. It, but I'm only hedging for a moment because, <laughs> and I'll explain. At these low, low, artificially low rates, bringing the 10-year T-bill up to three, 3.5% three shouldn't have a big effect on the stock market. Some some effect, but not a big effect. Yeah not a collapse effect.
1: Yeah, I mean, they don't want that to happen. No,
0: they don't want that to happen, so they're watching it carefully. But here's the thing, when it gets upwards toward four, then you start to feel it. And in other words, you're double what it used to be. Then you'll start to feel it when the market is already priced way up here. That can be the straw Hmm. that breaks the back of the market. So it's a real dangerous game they're playing to get off of zero, which they have to do, Right? We, we took strychnine or we took chemotherapy to, to avoid the cancer. But if we keep taking the chemotherapy, we're going to die of chemotherapy. So they got to cut down the chemotherapy. And if they don't, we're going to die of it. So they've got to. So that's they're painted into that corner.
1: All right. Now I have a question about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Why can't we just stay at low interest rates forever?
0: Okay. When we're at artificially low interest rates, what happens is, number one, you've repriced assets to artificially high levels.
1: Wait, what makes it artificial any differently than, it, than any other 4% or 6%? Isn't it all artificial? It's all set by the Fed.
0: Well, yes and no. The Fed has a lot of control of monetary policy. But ultimately, the market weighs in. And the market weighs in lots of different ways. So for example, if you have very, very low interest rates, Ideally, people are borrowing the money. That's why they put the interest rates low, is to get people to borrow cheap money, right? That cheap money goes into the economy and stimulates the economy, consumption, which then gets jobs, people get hired, and then you start to get a squeeze on labor, which we're getting, and then labor rates go up, which is what we want. We want people to start getting paid. But as they get paid, then they have more money, they buy more stuff, which raises wages and raises prices.
1: It's the inflation cycle. There you cycle. go. There the you go. The virtuous cycle of inflation. Yes.
0: And we're in the virtuous part of it right up until they discover they overshot the target and they've got too much money in the market. They effectively printed $4 trillion. When that starts rolling into the market in a burst of enthusiasm, wages go up, prices go up. We have huge inflation. And all of a sudden, that uh-huh. 1.5% interest rate or that 2% yeah. rate, nobody wants it.
1: You want it to be higher. Wait,
0: the government can't borrow any money. They won't. Nobody going to lend them the money at two percent. And the the government's running this huge deficit of over a trillion dollars. They have to get the money from someplace. If they don't pay a high enough interest rate in an inflationary environment, no lending, no lending. The only way they get the money is to print it, which accelerates the inflation. And you go into a hyperinflationary spiral. And this happens in really smart countries, then, and that will crush your currency. Eventually, your currency is worth nothing.
1: Okay. So we can't stay at low interest rates forever because inflation. Yes. The answer is always because inflation. (laughs) Yes. You're not sure the answer is inflation. I'm just going to start saying that to every question. Right. Um, All right. So I'll accept that. And the reason that it's artificially low, because you said that a bunch of times, Mm -hmm why is it artificial compared to
0: because money is an, money else? is an asset and you you have a rent on money just like you have a rent on a house so if i'm lending my money to someone i'm not going to do it for free right i want a return okay and i need to get a good enough return to make it worth lending it to you uh-huh. Right. And so historically, we've learned that there's this rate of return that's considered a good return is going to run, let's say, for a 10 year T-bill in the federal government, it's going to run four to six percent in that ballpark. People are willing to lend the money at that rate of return. What they're not willing to do is an inflationary environment lending it at two. They won't do it. So it's just simply pragmatics. What are people willing to do? And we find really fast that as inflation kicks in, they're not willing to lend the money. Now we had the opposite of this back in 1980 when we had the desire from the Federal Reserve is to shut down this huge inflation we had. And what they did to do that is to go the opposite way. They raised interest rates of the federal government to the 30-year T-bill went to 15%.
1: Well, that's what I was just thinking. I don't understand how that's any less or more artificial than 2.3% 2.3% or whatever
0: it is. Well, it's extreme, right? And I, you could make a really good case that the Federal Reserve has gotten way too deep into the market. A lot of people do make that case.
1: Isn't it just all artificial?
0: In a sense, you could say fiat currency is all artificial. You okay, because you
1: were making a really big point that it was an artificially low interest rate instead of right. saying a low interest rate.
0: Right. So here, here's the the ranges. An artificially high interest rate, one that's unsustainable, which will collapse your economy eventually, is like 15%. Okay. And many countries that got up to that level of rate of interest rate failed eventually. Their, their interest rate continued, the demand on interest rates to go up continued to go higher and higher. Venezuela is a case in point right now. Okay. Their, their economy is failing because they can't keep up with the interest rate of inflation. Okay, so that's artificially high. Artificially low is zero, right? No one's going to lend money for zero, but they've just been doing it for like two years. They lent money for zero. In Germany, they they were lending money at minus. You had to pay them to borrow.
1: Yeah, I know. I heard about that. Excuse
0: me. You had to pay them to give them your money.
1: I didn't believe that.
0: That's for real. Now, those are artificial on one side, artificial on the other. The real market is somewhere loosely in the middle there.
1: Okay, that's the sense I'm getting, that you think non-artificial is like 4 to 6% because that's generally ballpark. what people will kind of meant. Historically ballpark. And basically anything outside economy. of that in your mind seems artificial.
0: Yeah, when it okay. starts getting up like that, then the Federal Reserve is responding to inflation and they're trying to shut inflation down. When it gets artificially below that, they're responding to depression or deflation and trying to stimulate the whole thing.
1: Okay, I got gotcha. you. Right. So what's the indicator that, that the interest rate rise is heading us towards maybe?
0: Well, one... Of my favorite guys is this wonderful guy over at NYU, Professor. I'm going to say his name wrong. Damaterin. Okay. Hopefully, I've got it right. I, have no idea. I say it Damadorin, Damaterin. <laughs> <laughs> He's fabulous. Look him up. Sorry, Professor. <laughs> um, and he is saying that for him, um, he would say that when the interest rates hit four percent on the ten-year T-bill, you're at a seventy percent probability the market crashes.
1: Okay. So, good to know, good
0: to know. An indicator. It's an indicator.
1: So now we have three indicators.
0: Those are all fundamental indicators, all right?
2: So Danielle okay. and Phil, we've got a couple more questions coming in for you. Um, so we've got two questions that are very similar. Um, so people are saying that they're concerned about the current market, obviously. Um, so Steven says, based on the current market, he says that he has moved his 401k from mutual funds to money market while he learns Rule 1 investing. Cool. Do you think this is a smart move?
0: In my opinion... Genius move.
2: <laughs> Good job, Stephen.
0: Genius move. All right, let me get on to a couple of reasons why here. OK, so these are the fundamental things. We've got the Wilshire GDP, we've got the Schiller PE, we've got interest rates, right? Um, and then we have the facts of what some of the best investors in the world are doing, Okay. which I pay very close attention to, particularly these two people, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Hello. I know. I know. So, a couple of facts for you guys. Charlie, as I said yesterday, hasn't bought a stock for a couple of years, mm-hmm. He's staying uh, in cash and with what he currently owns. Warren has not been able to buy anything significant for almost two years and now has accumulated uh, stockpiled up cash to. Doesn't he
1: have so much?
0: 116 billion <laughs> in cash. In cash. Now this is, to to put this in perspective, you need to understand the history of of Buffett's investing. In any previous, okay, this market's too high, I'm going to jump into the market when it crashes moment, like 1999, 2007. The most cash Buffett's ever had was less than half of what he's got right now.
1: Is that because his company was smaller or or he had the same amount and he kept...
0: Partly that, but it's, it's that this is a very rare time that Buffett hasn't been able to find anything that is significant that he can acquire mm-hmm. at a good price. And you remember, that what, are, what are Warren and Charlie's criteria? right? We understand the business, it's got a moat, we like the managers, and we could buy it at a fair price. From Buffett's perspective, there's no fair prices out there right now. So this should inform you that the best investor in the world has come out and said publicly, this is when I get my wash tub ready. Yeah. Because when we have the next economic storm, which come along about every 10 years, and these are his words, they come along about every 10 years, it's going to rain gold. And what he means is that economic storm is going to cause a lot of fear, and that fear is going to drive people out of the stock market. Those great companies are going to go on sale, and he has a washtub of cash to go spend when that happens. And he says that's when you walk outside because it's raining gold. And this is the very essence of rule one investing. This is why it's so hard for people to get their heads wrapped around the idea that an individual investor can make huge rates of return, 15, 20%, 25%, simply by being patient and having cash when these very regular events occur.
1: Yeah, someone very well respected commented to me like, oh, those rates of return that you guys talk about just are a bit ridiculous, you know, like you might want to Tone it down a little bit because nobody gets those. Right. And I thought, yeah, like you're right, nobody gets those, and I'm making air quotes because nobody means people who manage money right. don't get those. Right. And that's true pretty much. Very there are a few, and we put a list of them in our book, but most of the people who manage money are not able to do that because in my opinion, they have to respond to their short-term incentives, which is even if they're trying to invest for the long term their investors are not gonna stick around for more than maybe a year or two of down returns. You
0: wanna know what's astonishing to me is that no one in academia, to my knowledge, has ever pointed that out.
1: I know, and I've been You're thinking- You're
0: the first one Well, Well, either,
1: either I'm wrong, which is definitely an option, or I should, really do a study on this because I'm fascinated by the idea of it. Like, I would like to figure out why this isn't working for people who do this professionally, but it works for people who don't like that. that it shouldn't go that way, right? It shouldn't go
0: that way until you see the dynamic of what it is to run a fund. Buffett, I hate to get too far off the subject of the market and we'll come back to it, but essentially Buffett says that you have what what he calls the institutional imperative. Yeah. and what he means by that is you've got this guy who's running a four billion dollar fund and he's waiting for this pitch to come in that he can hit and he's waiting and waiting and what's going on is all of those pension fund managers who gave him the money are screaming at him to swing swing at that pitch swing at that pitch and they are simply not going to sit there for two years while you sit there and do nothing it's yeah. not going to happen yeah
1: so it's it, the it really fact is of managing
0: money it's just it is like a law of gravity. And there is a world of, of evidence that the vast majority of fund managers, and Charlie thinks it's in the neighborhood of ninety five percent, simply shadow the market. They don't really provide any extra value at all. Mm. Shocking. But well, it's so
1: true. I wanna hear what these three four indicators well, now, got, kind of add up to, and then let's take maybe a final question or two. and Okay. Um, so, up. these
0: three indicators put me on edge. Um, so, starting we've
1: got, sorry, just to go back Buffett indicator, mm-hmm. Schiller PE, mm-hmm. the interest rate interest indication rate rising, rising mm-hmm. and, and the Buffett and will. Munger not doing anything in the market.
0: Big deal for me that all four of those things are going along. Now, notice that the interest rate is still relatively low, so we're not, we're Dem- says we would be in a panic situation. Okay. But there's something else going on that I track pretty closely that are set of indicators that are essentially what are called technical indicators. So we've talked about fundamental things.
1: Wait a second, you're not supposed to time the market.
0: No, 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 I know, I know.
1: But there's a thing that you use to time the market?
0: It works really good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're such a Stinker.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I. That's why I made the call in 2007, and it's why I made the call in 2009 to get back in. And I'm tweaking around the edges of this thing right now. I mean, it's just like so. What is right this? Some kind there. of
1: computer, thing?
0: computer-driven analysis of the the essentially the flow of pricing in the markets.
1: Okay. The
0: flow of volume in the markets, and so right. these are. Well, for the rest of
1: us who don't follow these things, because I do not want to be in the business of timing the market, right? No,
0: you shouldn't. Tell actually. me,
1: tell me what it says.
0: Well, what it says is we're hanging by a thread right now. To to your point, where are we right now today? I think we're within a couple of days of down markets of triggering all those things to say get out. A
1: couple of days a couple of, of down days markets. Days
0: of down markets could do it right here. That's how close we are. That's how much the volatility of the recent days has impacted. The technical side which is charting stuff it's looking at the flow of money in and out um, and the volume and that is pushing it to this place where historically it's been pretty darn accurate in other words when we exit on these signals that I like um, we find even when they're wrong and they were wrong in like 2015 they were like get out oh really oh yeah but so they suck well no because <laughs> the market was getting tumbled and then as it reformed itself they said, get back in. Oh. And there was very little gap between the exit and the entrance. So it wasn't a damaging situation, right? Mostly um, the signals trigger every four or five years, if you wanted to know how slowly they trigger. So first you stack on the fundamental issues, which we have. Then you have Buffett in cash, which we have. And those alone would be justification to just go to cash, all by themselves. But then you have this problem of the market could be irrational for the next three years. Yeah. So if you're riding the market or riding good stocks, like let's say an Apple or something like that, you don't want to pull the trigger too soon. So it's nice to have a technical signal set that'll say, yes, everything says get out, and now the big guys are exiting the market. Exit with them. So that's the final trigger, and it hasn't triggered yet. I'll tell you right now, it hasn't triggered yet. I thought it was going to go, and then we went up in the market. Then I thought it was going to go, and then we went up in the market. But it is hanging by a thread. So you know, it, it, when it goes, I'm I'm going to wrap up a few things, but I'm mostly already, just so you'll know, I'm mostly already pretty much oriented toward cash on everything that I'm profitable on. That money's already coming out. Um, the stuff that I'm leaving in there, the companies that I continue to own, I think are massively on sale, as in Depression-era pricing right now. And I'm happy to continue to own them and buy more when they go down 50%. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's where I'm at and that's, I think, scary. The, the market is in this place. Now, you can hold me to it, but I want you to remember that I understand the market could continue to rock and roll for you know two or three years, it absolutely could. Now, in addition, Ray Dalio just came out a couple weeks ago who is, runs the biggest hedge fund in the world. He's the single best macro investor in the world, meaning using currencies, all the things going on in every country in the world as mm. an indicator of where things are going and dalio just came out and said we're going to 70% chance we're going to have a huge recession in the next 2 years. And the market will precede well, that. It'll, I mean, it'll go down first.
1: That's essentially what you just said, you know, 2 yep. to 3 years. Yep. But I'm like my I'm just I can't believe you use technical indicators <laughs>
0: I've kept <laughs> secrets never, from you.
1: And you've never said anything about it.
0: First time, right here.
1: You guys who know about this stuff, send in your questions about technical. What What do I even I ask? won't answer them. You can send them, them in, but I ask. won't answer them. Okay, fine. Don't send them in. <laughs> questions at investedpodcast.com. Yeah. Jeez Louise. Yeah. Way to pull that one out of your back pocket. Well,
0: the thing is, you have to you have to put it in context. and. When you're dealing with something that's as irrational as the market in this particular situation, you've got to have something that helps keep your emotions under control. And that's what technical signals do. They're really great for that.
1: Oh.
0: All right, I'll tell you about those later.
1: Yeah, we're going to have to Off talk the air. about this. Off the air. We're going to have to talk about this. Obviously, we hold um, these
0: a little bit tight to our chest.
1: <laughs> so, Amelia, anything else going on on Facebook? Well, we've been
2: getting a ton of questions, and unfortunately, we can't get to all of them in a limited amount of time. But as Danielle said, if you have questions that haven't been answered, you can um, email, was it invested pod
1: Questions, questions? at com. All
2: right, so everyone do that. And I just wanted to wrap things up. Um, We've been getting a lot of questions about um, where people can see you live. Um, We've got lots of fans on here. Um, So could you just tell everyone just a little bit quickly just about the Rule 1 Investing workshops that you do, and also just a little bit um, about what they can learn in your new book, Invested?
1: Yeah, Um, well so dad can talk about the workshops. Um, The new book is great for anybody starting this stuff. I mean this is my, it's an investing memoir essentially. It's the story of a year of my life and all the stuff that happened to me from absolutely first starting this podcast to learning investing, to going through all sorts of emotional ups and downs while I tried to figure this stuff out a lot about our relationship and about my own life. Um, And there's stuff that happens that's very exciting, um, which I don't want to give away the ending. (laughs) So I think people, I hope will just really enjoy this book, like enjoy reading it. If you guys start investing because of it, that's awesome. You will know how to do it by the end of the book.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and it's also just a good story, which was my goal.
0: Good story, good education. And this is kind of the primer for the workshop that we do, mm. which is one of the reasons I really wanted to write it with Danielle, is because the first two books are great. Um, they're really made for people who are already pretty into investing. They love the idea. It's pretty deep in the weeds. This thing is taking us from the beginning. It's perfect for the workshop. So in the workshop, if you've read Invested and then come to the workshop, you're going to have a good sense of the direction we're going to go in the first day and a half. Then after that, we take you completely into the wild blue yonder (laughs) um, working on cash flow. So um, we typically do the workshop once every month or a couple months. Um, We do it in Atlanta. Uh, It's three days long. I teach it. We usually have everybody out to the to the horse farm um, for a barbecue on Saturday for a couple hours. We work you 10-12 hours a day. It's a really great workshop, and you can apply for a scholarship to the workshop if you just go to the website ruleoneinvesting.com and apply for it, or you can go over to danieltown.com. And, and find your way through there. Yeah,
1: and I'm going to be doing a really cool online course coming up that's going to be live. And you can find out details about that at danielletown.com. And that's going to be for all the people who, like me, need a little help to get going, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's hard. And I get it. And so we're going to be talking a lot about how to get from finishing this book to actually starting. Yeah,
0: that's going to be pretty cool stuff. You should really take a look at that. And um, we look forward to seeing you out there. I mean, it is a a powerful experience to go through uh, from never having invested. Go through the book. Go through the the little exercises that we have for you in the book, which are fantastic. And that will start getting you set up. Then Daniel's going to keep working on that for her website. And ultimately, you end up as a really good investor. And by the way, one more quick point. We don't sell anything at the workshop. We don't even, nothing, zero. It's all education three full days and you go home ready to hit it.
1: It's intense. I was just out there at it um, two weeks ago. I hope you
0: can come to several. I mean, you you live in Zurich, I know. I enjoy
1: coming, I'd like to. Yeah. Um, And I was just there two weeks ago and people kept on. It was so great to see everybody who was there. I'm sure some of you are watching. It was so great to see all of you. And people kept coming up to me and going, this thing is intense. And I was like, Yeah, it is. And they were like, It's fantastic.
0: Wait till the book comes out. You're gonna have yeah. you're gonna want to have this read before you go into this it's workshop. It's great.
1: You guys it's offer really so helpful. much, like it's just like yep. fantastic education.
0: Well, can you come back? Like if we what we'll do is we'll set up a time when Danielle's gonna be there. And we'll let you guys know. We'll we'll put it out on Facebook that you're gonna be at that particular workshop and Yeah, that'd
1: be fun. That'd be great. Let's do that. Okay. Okay. So our book is out. We are leaving New York soon. We're not going to be having this beautiful studio anymore.
0: Back to Zoom.
1: Back to Zoom.
0: <laughs> for the podcast. We're
1: usually a part for the podcast, mm. so we do it on the Internet. But it's nice when we're together. It so is. I this whole it. adventure has been amazing. And I'm yep. excited to see the book continuing to be in bookstores. Thank you to all of you for buying the book. I mean, yeah. we're sitting here because of you. And, um, you know, I probably would have done all of this. Well, I definitely would have done all the investing stuff anyway. But to have put it all down, I wouldn't have done that, I don't think, without all of you asking all these questions to our podcast and yeah. asking for a written manual. So I really appreciate that personally.
0: So I guess it's time to go play. What do you think? All right. All right, you guys, all the Thank best. Thank you, Amelia. We'll See you next time. Time to go play.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.